0: Our message this morning comes from the book of Matthew, verse, or chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. This is the word of the Lord. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, "'Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. "'My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon.' "'But he did not answer her a word. "'And his disciples came and begged him, saying, "'Send her away, for she is crying out after us.' "'He answered, "'I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel.' Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for gathering us here once again. And we just pray now that as we delve into your word, that you would enlighten it for us, that you would help me to preach your word, that you would open all of our hearts to hear your message this morning. We ask ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. So as you've gone throughout your life, have you ever wondered to yourself, why is it that my faith can often seem so frail, so weak, so lacking in boldness? You look at those around you and you see them and they seem like they have just such a strong faith. And we hear stories of those doing courageous things. And often we feel like we just don't have any of that. We have faith, to be sure, but... You know, not that kind. We know we believe, but there seems to be so much unbelief in us. Moments when it seems like we should exercise courage and boldness in our faith, but we back away. If you had to answer the question, what are the ingredients of a bold faith, what would you say? Why is it that some people's faith seems shaky and frail, while others seem bold and strong. In our passage today, we're going to see an example of a bold faith and see if we can't pick out some of the ingredients from it. The faith that we're going to look at today is, as your title probably says, the faith of a Canaanite woman, the faith of a Gentile, of somebody who was outside the Jewish community. And her faith is set in contrast to what came before. If you look up just above that in this chapter, you see Christ talking with the Pharisees, and he's arguing with them. them. They're having a problem discerning what really makes somebody unclean, and so Christ has to explain to them where uncleanness truly comes from. It's contrasted with the self-assured, self-righteous legalism of the Pharisees, who wouldn't touch anything unclean. It's, often, it's even sort of said in contrast to the faith of the disciples who, even though they had Christ right there with them, they often questioned Him and doubted and just failed to have a full faith in Him. So the Jews, even though they could boast that they were heirs of the covenant, were often blind and deaf when Christ offered them redemption. So in contrast to the Jews of the day, there is this woman, a woman who was not of Israel, a woman who was a Gentile, an alien to the covenant promise. And she comes to Christ in a demonstration of a truly bold faith. There are hundreds, thousands of people mentioned in Scripture, named and unnamed. And there are only a handful, you could probably count them on your hand, who are actually commended for having a truly bold faith in Scripture. And this woman, whose name we don't even know, is one of them. She's a woman of the land of Tyre, a city which was a symbol of idolatry and paganism in the Old Testament. A city which the prophets had pronounced judgment against time and time again for their arrogance and their greed. Even in the New Testament period, this city was still one of Israel's most bitter enemies. And so here in this passage we have this woman, a woman who in the eyes of the Jews could probably only be worse if she were a Samaritan. She's in a desperate condition. Her daughter is possessed by a demon and her life is in turmoil. And so what does she do? She seeks out Christ, crossing ethnic and social boundaries to beg Him to cast out this spirit from her child. So what kind of soil produces this kind of response to Christ? What are the ingredients of this kind of bold faith? We're going to assume one base ingredient throughout or, out it all. That's knowledge. You have to have knowledge. That's like the flour of the bread that you're baking. You have to have some sort of flour in your bread. And so on, in addition to knowledge, we're going to be looking at three other things this morning, three other ingredients that produce this sort of faith. <coughs> when coupled with the proper knowledge. And these ingredients are a desperation, a hope, and a a humility. The first quality we see in the faith of this woman is her desperation. Her child is afflicted with an unclean spirit, a demonic influence, and it is outside of her power to do anything about it. She might have tried other things, we're not told. Maybe she went to the healers in her area, maybe she went to the, the pagan priests, Whatever she tried before, it hasn't worked. And so she is desperate. What this tells us is something that we should already know, and that is that in addition to knowledge, we also have to have something else. We have to have a desperation. But the knowledge is there, and it is key. Even here she comes to Christ saying, "'Have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David.'" And that's very specific. In Mark, that use of the word Lord only occurs one time in all of Mark's gospel, and that's when this woman uses it in his telling. She's not an Israelite, but she uses this word. She doesn't say, "'Have mercy on me, Rabbi.'" She doesn't say, "'Have mercy on me, O guy who can do miracles.'" She says, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. She, not a, she's not an Israelite, but somehow she's gotten this knowledge. Somehow it's filtered to where she's at, and she has knowledge of this true faith, knowledge of who this Jesus truly is. She has knowledge of the true faith, but a deep faith and a bold faith is something more than just that. It's further rooted in an understanding of just how desperate our condition is. Because isn't it true that you can't truly appreciate grace, you can't truly get excited about the mercies of God unless you acknowledge your own need. You can't be moved and filled with the grace of God without acknowledging your need for it. But too often we don't want to acknowledge our need for it. Sure, we, we acknowledge it factually, intellectually, but often it's not emotionally, not in our hearts we often don't see ourselves as being as bad off as we are. And this can be especially hard on, on those of us that we, we call covenant children, those of us who grew up in the faith. It can often be more difficult for those who grew up in the faith to, to grasp with the full measure of our sin, of our, of our wickedness. Because we, growing up Baptists, we always had those people who had radical conversions, and we'd always seek after this radical conversion and for those people, it seems, well, okay, they had this radical conversion. It's easy to see, okay, they turned away from their sin. But for those of us who grew up in the faith, it can be much more difficult for, that, for us to see that in our lives, that sort of radical transformation. Regardless, there is a matter of pride that still haunts all of us ever since Adam first gave into the prideful temptation to be like God. It's a pride that we see best in the Pharisees, Because the key problem with the Pharisees, as we see every place they show up, is their pride, that they felt no need. In Luke 18, the Pharisee prays, he says, you know, Lord, thank you for not making me like other men. He might as well be praying, you know, Lord, I don't need you, God, I don't need you. I recognize other people do, those poor people need you, but I don't. But this woman, she sees how bad it is for her daughter and there's nothing she can do. And in a way, that's a picture of all of our conditions. We're born with a condition that leads to death and there's nothing we can do about it. For all of our desire to tell ourselves we're righteous, that we're good, the truth is there is no hope apart from grace. Our situation is desperate and we can't alter it. It'd be one thing if the evil were just in the world around us. So we could just separate ourselves from the world and be happy. We could go live in a monastery. But the greatest enemy we have is our own selves, the sin that is inside us. And so we can't just cut ourselves off from the world. There is a sin in us that must be reckoned with. So the story presents to us the message of the gospel. Christ opens our eyes to the depths of our needs. This woman comes to him crying, Have mercy on me, Lord son of David. She has some idea of who he is and she knows that she's in need, that she is in a desperate condition. But there is more than just desperation. Faith, it might be said, is the intersection of that kind of desperation and hope. Faith needs both. Just being desperate doesn't do you any good. You have to have something you can hope in. Somehow this woman has heard about this man from Nazareth, and there's nothing that was going to stop her from finding him. True hope doesn't let anything stop us from reaching after Christ, from running after him, because true hope knows that true blessing can only be found in one place. It knows that nothing can break the power of evil except our Lord Jesus Christ. I call this second quality hope, but it could just as easily be called confidence, because it's important to remember that the hope spoken of in the Bible, when the Bible uses the word hope, it doesn't mean it like we use that word today. It's gotten really watered down over the past 2,000 years or so. The biblical idea of hope, the modern idea of hope, it's just something you really want to happen. If you interview for a job, you might say, somebody asks you, well, did you get the job? You'll, Well, I don't know, but I hope so. You don't have any certainty that you're going to get the job, but you, know, you would really like to get the job, so you hope so. There's no certainty in that sort of hope. It's just something you would like to happen. This modern sort of hope, and must be understood, is the exact opposite of what the Bible means when it talks about hope what the apostles mean when they say that we as Christians have hope. It's not that sort of hope. Hope for them meant something that was absolutely certain. You had hope in the promises of God because you knew that God was a God who kept His promises and He had the power to do so. To have hope was not to just really want something to happen, but to have an inward assurance that it would and to live in light of that expectation So when we say our hope is in Christ, or that we have hope that the Lord will return, or that we have hope that the Lord will work His grace inside of us, what we mean is not that we just really want that to happen, what we mean is that we've been promised that, and so we are absolutely certain of that truth, and we will thereby live in light of it. That is the biblical notion of hope. So this woman knows her desperation and knows where her hope can find that sort of certainty. And so she seeks after Christ. And this is where the, the, the story makes a sort of odd turn, one we wouldn't expect from the gentle and the compassionate figure of Christ. Jesus has a surprising response to this woman. It doesn't sound compassionate at all. His response at first is what? She comes to him crying out, and what's his response at first? Silence. Nothing. She comes to him at first, and it says, she comes out crying, pleading, but he did not answer her a word. She gets no answer from him, but she doesn't let up. So much so, it sort of gets on the disciples' nerves. They're like, send her away, she's crying out after us now. So at first Christ is silent, and then when He does speak, when she persists, it doesn't even seem like a positive reply. He says, Woman, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You're not one of the ones I was sent for. And still she doesn't give up. She comes closer and she kneels before Him saying, Lord, help me. She needs help. She knows she needs help. And she knows that this man, Jesus is the only one who can do it. There is no other hope to be found in this world. And so she persists with an extremely simple and wonderful petition, just, Lord, help me. And still Christ doesn't assent. But he replies in what seems like one of the most harsh statements in all of the Gospels to this woman who's pleading with him. He says, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Many scholars here think that what Christ is doing is that he's giving her sort of the response she would expect from a Jewish rabbi in order to see how she responds to that. Because really, this is exactly what we'd respond If she was to go up to a rabbi and ask for, like to a Pharisee and ask for blessing, he's going to say, no, you're a dog. Get away from me. The blessings aren't for you. And so some say, well, that's what he's doing. He's sort of posturing as a Jewish rabbi would have to, see, to, t- to test her faith. What, so, Calvin would say that what Christ is doing here is drawing out her faith. He's testing it to see if he can draw it out even further, seeking to strengthen that faith even further, to uncover the true fullness of her faith that is there, that he would have never seen if he would have given her the answer from the beginning. Either way, his statement, his response, is again a restatement of the fact that Israel is the focus of his mission. She's not part of Israel, and that's what he's telling her. The term dog was their word for Gentiles. That's what they would use to refer to the Gentiles. And so he's saying to this woman, don't you know that you're outside the family? Don't you know that you're outside the covenant promises? You don't have any claim to the mercies that you're asking for. You don't bring any merit to this moment at all. You are not one of the children. You are an outsider, what the Jews would refer to as a dog. He says this to her, and you cannot help but love her response that even the dogs eat the children's crumbs. What a remarkable and humble example of faith that is. This is true humility, the third ingredient. She says, I don't fight the diagnosis, she says. I am what you say I am. I own that. She doesn't respond like so many would, saying... A proud, unhumbled heart would not have stood for such a response. They'd have walked out, he called me a dog, I'm going to leave. This isn't the kind of Messiah that I want. The Jews had trouble receiving the Messiah as little children, had trouble receiving the kingdom as little children, but this woman has no qualms about receiving the kingdom as a little dog. She comes empty-handed. She makes no claims. She has no merit, no priority, no standing, nothing to commend her. There is no you owe me this attitude here. She doesn't argue that she's the exception to the rule, but I'm a special case, so you should do this. She doesn't ask for special treatment. She is truly and ultimately humble. And again, her faith is built on knowledge. She knew the desperation of her condition. She knew that hope could only be found in Christ the Lord because of who he was. She knows that she has no merit, no standing, no cause for special treatment. And so she comes with humility. And what's more, she knows something of the provision of the Lord, she knows the bounty of his blessing, and her insight reveals something to us about the mission of God. She is told by Christ, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she knows the provision of this particular father, of the father of these particular children. This is why when Christ asks her, don't you know you're outside the covenant promises? Don't you know you don't have any claim here, she can respond with this wonderful statement of faith that yet, yes, but even the dogs eat the crumbs from their master's table, and I will gladly be a dog under the table of this master. I will gladly eat these crumbs because of how great this master's provision is. It will be overflowing. When the provision of the Father is as full and as rich and as bountiful as the provision of the God of Israel, then even the dogs under the table can eat and likely eat their fill. We see here an overflow that was meant to be characteristic of Israel throughout all of the Bible. The people of God were meant to overflow. As Tom spoke of in, church this, or in Sunday school this morning, Talked about how the pastor is supposed to God works through the pastor to bless the people, and Israel is supposed to be the same way. They're supposed to be a kingdom of priests, God working through them to bless the people, and we see that this is even a characteristic of Christ in His ministry. We know from Mark's telling that the issue here for Christ is a matter of priority, a matter of sequence. <laughs> And Mark, Christ's words are, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It's a matter of which one is supposed to come first, of which domino is supposed to fall and hit the other. Like one domino hitting another, the blessing of Israel was meant to fall and hit and bless the rest of the world in turn. There was meant to be an overflow from the world. This goes as far back as Abraham. He says... I will bless the nations through you, Abraham. It's again in the Exodus. There are Egyptians who leave with the Israelites in the Exodus. Even there, he's blessing the nations around. Constantly God is saying, I'm going to bless the nations through you. Everywhere Israel is called a light to the nations in the prophets, in the Psalms. That's what it's referring to. There's supposed to be a light that draws outsiders to its warmth and also shines out to them. There's meant to be an overflow. What you might call the residual blessings of Israel, of the children of God. The blessings were always meant to overflow, but tragically the Old Testament Israel often failed to embrace this. This missionary role that they had. Jonah is the prime example. He's told literally, go preach to the pagans. And he runs away. He's like, no, the pagans aren't the ones we're supposed to preach to. The pagans aren't our problem. They're outside the people. We don't care about them. They're the enemies. Old Testament Israel so often ran from their missionary calling. So perhaps this woman knew some bit of the truth in the way that she knew that Jesus was the Lord. She, somehow this had filtered to where she was, this knowledge. Perhaps in the providence of God Somehow she had heard the teachings of the Law and the Prophets. And so she comes to the Lord on this basis, assured of His bountiful blessing. Though a Gentile, she owns the promises that were made to the Jews. She recognizes that the salvation of the Jews meant blessing for the Gentiles. And so she recognizes that even the dogs don't have to wait to share in God's blessing. They can even now... Eat the bread that falls from the table. Yes, Lord, she says, I accept what you say as true, but even the dogs eat the crumbs, even the dogs can eat when the provision of the Father is so great. I ask not for a loaf, but only for a crumb. Whether Israelite or no, I come to the Son of David for mercy, and I will not let him go except that he bless me. She's so persistent in her pleas. For this response Christ says that she may go her way that her child is healed and she goes away she goes away without any empirical evidence at all trusting only in his word he's said it so it must be true and that's ultimately what faith is it's about trust faith is isn't ultimately about believing things we can't see or we can't prove, but it's about trusting in the word of another with the biblical hope of certainty. That knows that the promised thing will come to pass because the person who promised it is trustworthy. That is the essence of faith. Christ is trustworthy so she can go, she can leave his presence going back to her home knowing that what he said is true, knowing that He has said, my daughter is healed, so my daughter is healed. This perhaps is even a greater showing of faith, perhaps the greatest showing of faith in the entire passage. Her faith was tested when Christ was silent. It was tested again when he refused to give in. But she persisted, Lord, help me. And her faith was tested again when he refused a second time, but even the dogs eat the crumbs she said i only ask for the crumbs of a table from the table so rich as yours each time christ tested her faith and each time her faith shone all the brighter had he not tested her we can be sure we wouldn't be reading about her in this passage she just showed up and was like hey can you heal my daughter and he was like yeah it's done go away that passage wouldn't be in here But no, he tests her faith so that he can make it shine all the brighter. So that she can be one of the few people in all of Scripture admired for her her faith. So the final test came here at the end when she is sent away, when she must leave, trusting that Christ's promises would be fulfilled. Trusting that when she returned home she would find her daughter well. And as the other gospel writers tell us, as Mark points out specifically, she does just that. She goes home and her daughter is indeed well. Her daughter is well because Christ is trustworthy. Christ is worthy of our trust. The only one worthy of our trust. And so this too is where our final test is. When we must go out from this place and put our faith To live out our faith, to put feet to our faith in the world, trusting that the Lord has indeed provided and will continue to provide. So, what can we learn from this? What difference should this make in our lives? What's the so what of this passage? The application, the practical application that we can actually apply in our lives. First, there are a few side applications of this text. We see that parents should intercede for their children. This mother is interceding with Christ on behalf of her child, and so we see that a parent should intercede for their children. We see further that we should be able to look beyond social and cultural and ethnic boundaries. This woman is about as much of an outsider as she could have gotten, and yet Christ still blesses her. We can see that when the answers to our prayers are deferred when we're not answered immediately that God is teaching us to pray more and to pray better, that He's refining our faith so that it will shine even brighter. We also see that we shouldn't neglect our missionary duty. Non-believers are not the enemy. They are the mission field. Too often Christianity is set up As an us versus them sort of thing. But it's not. It's us seeking them out. It's us ministering to them. It's us seeking to spill the blessings and power of God over to them. God doesn't bless us just for the sake of blessing us, He blesses us so that His blessing may overflow to the world around, that we may be conduits of His blessing to His neighbors, to our neighbors. Second, we see that we are all in a desperate condition. We must first see ourselves as dogs, as undeserving of the least of God's mercies, before we are fit to be dignified and privileged with them. If you have not yet set your faith upon Christ, if you have not yet put your trust in His promises, then you can enter into His presence now knowing that He will accept you just as you are without merit and begin the process of transforming you through His grace. When you see yourself as unable, know that Christ has visited you. His grace has visited you because it's God's grace that shows us we are unable through His law, shows us our inability to live up to His standard because if you don't measure up, if you see yourself as not measuring up, thank God for that feeling. Thank God for showing you the first step towards grace. For that realization of unworthiness, of inability, is the first step. And even for those of us who do already believe, may that desperation and that hope still mobilize us too, day after day, because we still need the rescuing work of Christ day after day. It's not yet complete. it's interesting that the more we grow in Christ often we can seem to get discouraged we, can, we feel we fall short all the more if you feel that way this morning if you are a believer you, you still feel like I feel almost worse than I was when I first started don't despair because perhaps that too is a sign of growth paradoxically the more sanctified we become the further we can often feel from Christ and why is that? It's quite simply because we come into a better understanding of who Christ is. When we're first converted, we're like, okay, I'm like a zero on the holiness scale, maybe like a negative two, and Christ is about a 50. And so then we grow in Christ, we're sanctified, and we get up to about a 40. We're like, oh, well, Christ, He's actually like a 100. I'm not, he's further off than I thought. And then we reach 100, we reach 200, we reach 300 on the holiness scale. And each time we grow, we realize Christ is that much further off. He's much more perfect, much more magnificent, much more holy than we could ever have imagined at the beginning. And so the more we grow in Christ, the more we see how much greater He is than we are. And that is a wonderful assurance for believers who feel downtrodden, when we feel like we're just making no progress in this thing called our faith that should spurn us to follow after Him more and more. Because the more we grow, the more we will understand just the greatness of Christ. As Tom said, and again, Tom, you set me up well in Sunday school, just how infinitely better and more perfect Christ is, and we are constantly realizing that all the more. And so we constantly strive after that. As with the Canaanite woman, the true, the true test of our faith is, is when we go back out with the promises of the Lord back into the world, when we go out from this place and put feet to our faith, trusting that the Lord has provided and will provide. And so I hope this morning that what brought you here was not just a religious habit. It wasn't just, well, it's Sunday morning, so we go to church on Sunday morning. That's what we do. We're going to go home, have lunch after this, then take a nap. And there's no services this evening, so we won't be coming back. But I hope that's not what brought you here this morning. I hope it was a desperation and a hope that we're here with a heart of faith, seeking further the grace of the Redeemer and trusting in His provision for our lives. Trusting that He is completing the good work in you that He began and living in light of that. So finally, let us be glad in the provision of the Lord. Let us trust in the provision of the Lord. Let us be able to say, I would be glad to be a dog and eat the morsels off the table of this one, of this Lord, of this Father, whose provision is so rich, who has the only true provision, the only provision which can feed the hunger that I have. What a beautiful response that would be. Let us be able to say, I am what you have said, Lord. But if in your bountiful mercy your crumbs will follow me, then I will take the crumbs. That's how desperate I am. Because the crumbs off the table of the Messiah are more nutrient-rich, they're more satisfying than anything else anywhere in the world. Nothing else in the world can satisfy. Everything else is ash. But that I could only have the crumbs from the table of the Lord, I would be satisfied Can we say that with this woman? Can we join her in that declaration? Depending on His bountiful mercy, trusting in His providence. I pray that we could, for there is no other satisfaction. For the crumbs of Christ are the crumbs of the very bread of life. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank You yet again for this day, yet again for bringing us here to worship with your family, to worship you, the God who provides, the God who provides so well for his people that that blessing spills over into the world around. We thank you for this example of faith that you have given us this morning. One of the very few people who are actually commended for their great faith in the scriptures. That you've given this to us so that we may learn from it, so that our own faith may be strengthened. So we pray that you would strengthen our faith this morning, that you would, let us say, we would be glad to be a dog at your table, at the table of this Father whose provision is so well that even the dogs can eat but you have not left us as dogs. You have adopted us as children, and so we praise you for that. We praise you that we are now children at your table. We are now not merely receiving the overflow of your mercies and your grace, but we are now receiving the fullness of your grace, and you are transforming us in light of that into your image. We praise you for that, that you are transforming us, that we are growing And we just pray, Lord, that we could glorify you all the more as we go on throughout the rest of this day that we would glorify you all the more. We pray this knowing that you are a God who can be trusted for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.